though we took a brief respite from First Peter last week, it, you will, I trust, notice that it seems to be categorically in a similar kind of subject matter and content to some degree. We will address uh, perhaps also the garden scene that we considered last week as we looked at Adam and Eve eating of the forbidden fruit there. But nonetheless, we are picking up back here in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 2, actually hoping to press on through verse 25 today as we consider this subject of submission, freedom, and suffering. Submission, freedom, and suffering. I am persuaded that the paragraph heads that you may have in your ESV Bible are appropriate and the reason that I would bring that up this morning is because I would like to draw your attention to this idea that this this portion this passage of scripture verses 13 to 25 have in their completion an emphasis that actually isn't directed to submission but it is on suffering and I think that that's an important idea for us today because I'm persuaded that in our world of passivity, particularly in evangelicalism, we have inclined to draw our attention inappropriately to what is rightly our duty to submit to those in authority, but ultimately the emphasis being on the suffering that will come from our faithfulness to submitting to God. And so that would be an important theme today. And I would draw your attention historically to the figure of John Knox. John Knox, individually, likely is characterized as one who enjoyed in posterity, as an individual, the one that was most responsible and used of God in the recovery of the gospel in a single nation, that is the nation of Scotland. The queen of the day said that she feared... More than an army of 10,000 men, the prayers of John Knox. And John Knox understood this passage of Scripture in a way that in some ways certainly differed from some of those men and Bible students around him. And I am drawn to agree with John Knox. And so that will also come uh, into the idea here in the context of Scripture. John Knox was inclined to draw a distinction between the authority of the position of government and that of an individual, uh, recognizing that while we rightly honor the office of king or of prime minister or of president as we should, there is also significant concern uh, with the individuals that may hold those offices and it may obviously impact our ability to obey them because they may call us to do things that are not in accordance with God's Word. Or, secondly, they may call us to do things that are not in the sphere of their authority. So this is, a, this is an important idea that we want to come to here. And I did end off a few weeks ago with this idea of what it is to submit and what the difference is between submission and absolute obedience. What's the difference between submission and absolute obedience? The difference is, uh, as I referenced last week, Gordon Runyon, he said, the way I submit in the scriptural fashion is by mentally and purposefully putting myself at your disposal as your servant. That's submission. I recognize your authority and am willing to live under it. 
Now, after I've submitted, then if you tell me to disobey God, we're now in a different area of concern. And my submission to your authority has nothing to do with answering how I should respond. So this is an important idea. Again, the idea here isn't that we stir up rebellious attitudes in us, but the idea is that we focus on what has God said, and then therefore what are we to do as people that enter into the praxis or the activity of the proclamation of the gospel into these matters. Yes, the gospel is doctrine, but the, the gospel is also duty. We see the Apostle Paul uh, has the same pattern that Peter has set up for us here. We establish doctrine, this is true, and this is true, therefore do this. And so this is the idea that we see here in Peter. And so as we look at the passage here, the Bible says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor's supreme, verse 14, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Again, we obey to the extent that the orders are lawful. But again, there's also this idea, as I mentioned a minute ago, and this idea of, of the, the sphere of authority. For instance, consider compulsory public education. It was only a generation ago and it was illegal to homeschool children because of our compulsory education laws. And so we recognize, rightly so, although there are a number of people that would disagree with us, that our children are our responsibility as parents. That God has given them to us, they're gifts to us, of course, ultimately owned, created by God, but we recognize that we have the earthly authority for our children, not the state. So this is, uh, while the state may declare they, have, uh, they own our children and their education, the reality is, is they don't own that sphere of authority. It isn't given to them. As a matter of fact, the primary purpose of a government isn't, uh, isn't to do those sorts of things. It's actually to protect us in life, right? And to defend those God-given rights. Consider city ordinances such as the one being proposed in West Lafayette, Indiana, similar to the C-4 legislation that just unanimously passed the Canadian House and Senate. Without discussion by the so-called conservatives there. So this is a blow to the gospel, but there are, as I said, uh, there are cities and other areas, communities, perhaps even states that would also be attempting to, or perhaps already have, passed laws that would impact uh, the ability to speak. It's the free speech issue. Also, it is a gospel proclamation issue. Can I speak the things of God uh, in a way uh, that... uh, will be acceptable to people. The answer to that, of course, it won't be acceptable to some. But those who ask for the gospel, those who uh, will hear the gospel, certainly should have the privilege of hearing it. We've stood by that. Further, we may think of other aspects of the authorities uh, that have been laid upon us where there is no actual sphere of authority given to them by God. The vaccine mandates, other mandates surrounding the man-made pandemic stretch the constitutionally declared God-given rights of the free people of our nation to an unrecognizable form. The government has no authority over whether we take a certain medicine or not. Think about it. Think about it. 
That's, that's what's being impressed upon us this day. Is that the government has the authority to require us to take a medicine. Now, now uh, we would claim not only, obviously, is that unconstitutional, but more importantly than that, the government has no authority in that sphere of our lives. The shape of our nation, including the destruction of a once caring institutional medical community, has been so deformed, it seems sometimes unrecoverable. Consider the suicides, the inability to have routine life-saving tests, people dying alone, refusal of life-saving treatments, and so forth. This is all uh, the, the impact of what we have, in fact, created. Our government has created. So we go on. We consider, again, this, this idea of how we've responded, how the evangelical church has responded. The evangelical church was largely silent with the advent of no-fault divorce and the accompanying the government-is-my-father policies that have gutted the nuclear family also largely silent with the verdict of legalized abortion in our nation. R.C. Sproul wrote wrote an article a few years ago called The Voice of the Church. I'd like to read an excerpt from that. This is from R.C. Sproul, again entitled The Voice of the Church. Those who hide behind the idea that the church should never speak to political issues, have missed the scriptural accounts of what we would call prophetic criticism. It may have been politically incorrect for Nathan to confront David over his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. It may have been politically incorrect for Elijah to confront Ahab for his sinful confiscation of Naboth's vineyard. It may have been politically incorrect for John the Baptist to challenge Herod, the Tetrarch's illicit marriage. In these and other examples from sacred scripture, we see representatives of the church not trying to become the state, but offering prophetic criticism to the state, despite the potential consequences. The church is not the state, but it is the conscience of the state, and it is a conscience that cannot afford to become seared and silent. The state is an instrument ordained by God. It is also governed by God. The church does not need to be the state, but it must remind the state of its God-given duty. The principal reason for the existence of any government is to maintain, sustain, and protect the sanctity of human life. When the state fails to do that, it has become demonized, and it is the sacred duty of the church and of every Christian to voice opposition to it. End of quote. The refusal of the church to take up this God-ordained mantle of prophetic criticism, as R.C. Sproul mentions, I think honestly can be traced in some ways to an improper understanding of this concept of submission to authority. This passage for the Apostle Peter mirrors the passage that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13. If... I lean into this by way of submitting to authority, then you can recognize and see how easily it will be for a passive generation to to think that in their submitting to authority, that means that I cannot bring prophetic biblical criticism to the government of the day. I think what R.C. Sproul has said here is very, very important. It's very, very important. This idea that it is our duty to proclaim to the government that which is right and true and good. The church is the conscience of the government. 
There's no reason for a godless people to even understand the kind of authority that God has ordained in them as a government. Our framers had a good understanding of that. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, but nonetheless he appreciated the motto such that he made it and put it on his personal seal, this idea that resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. I trust that he got that from John Knox. Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. You might consider looking at Virginia's flag. On Virginia's flag, the Latin words six semper tyrannis are on that flag. Thus, always to tyrants. It's not a pretty sight. But they stood their ground. That's the idea. We can look at Jefferson, we can look obviously at John Knox, and we can look at the history of our nation. And I think there we'll find a better hermeneutic to understand the biblical intention, even of 1 Peter chapter 2, as well as Romans chapter 13. Now let's look at verse 15 here. This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now this is an important idea. The idea here that First Peter, and I think we should gather from this, isn't that we need to become those nagging Christians that are never happy about anything, that can always find fault with every single thing in the universe. That's not what Peter is calling us to here. That's not, that's not the idea. You see, the reality is, is that at this point in history, the Christians, uh, their, the reputation that the Christians had was yet associated with that of the Jews. There was, not, there was not this understanding that Christianity is in fact a distinct completion of biblical Judaism. It was only seen as some sort of sect associated with Judaism. That, of course, in some ways is certainly true. But the idea is this. We see that the Jews were conquered time and time again. They were moved around from place to place. And they had a reputation for being a bit ornery. They didn't, they didn't take very kindly uh, submitting to authorities that were godless or wicked. Even though, in many ways, they were godless and wicked themselves. Nonetheless, they weren't happy with the nations that God had used to bring about holiness and judgment upon them. And so they were had a reputation of being ungovernable. The Christians, kind of because of their association with the Jews, also gained that reputation. And so Peter is drawing attention to this idea. Is, Look here, it should be your reputation that you're an orderly, submissive people. That you should, you should desire the the benefit and the goodness of the community that you're at. You should work hard. You should commit yourself to faithfulness in these areas. You should submit as you can to those in authority over you. Absolutely. You should be known as a people in that way, who are gracious, who are kind, who submit to authority. So that's, that's, that's an important idea here. This is a purpose statement, I think, in this section of Scripture. I think there are a number of purpose statements here. One of these is in verse 15, and that simply is this purpose statement. Do good. Do good. Now, there are other purpose statements here. I think we have a purpose statement in verse 21. It seems pretty clear. To this you have been called. 
to this you have been called. Called to what? To suffer. To this you've been called. To suffer. We have another purpose statement in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Well, here's the third purpose statement I'm proposed. Here is uh, persuaded that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do good. You've been called to suffer. And righteousness and holiness is a priority. Do good and silence the ignorance of foolish people. Says verse 15. Silence the ignorance of foolish people. Christians as a block don't have a good reputation. Now that shouldn't surprise us. And we're not all the same, right? Uh, but we, we want to be a people. We're, we're not going to gain a good reputation by a world that hates God. We should stop trying to do that. But that doesn't mean that we, we have license to be nagging rebels. People that are just curmudgeons in every conversation that we have. No, we, we should be known as a people who, who have a character that reflects the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should ask ourselves the question in verse 15, what does doing good mean? In a room of 100 people, you might have 100 answers. But who gets to declare what good is? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ established for us and reminded us that in the garden, God alone has the authority to declare what is good. And so we look to Him, and we do those things that He has called good, and we reject those things that is bad. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Not using freedom as a cover-up for evil. This is antinomianism. Antinomianism. Children, can you say that with me? Antinomianism. That's a big word. Now, let's think about this word for a minute. Let's split it up into two parts, or maybe three. We'll just talk about the first two. Anti. We know what that means, right? It means against. Against. Anti. And this idea gnome here, in gnomianism, gnome, that has to do with law. So the idea here is if I'm an antinomian, then I'm, I'm standing in opposition to the law of God. But we know that that's not the purpose of the law. If we look at David, for instance, and we say that David, David said, Oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how I desire to enter into your law. Oh, how I desire to walk faithfully with the law of God. The law is a reflection of the character of God. David desires to be faithful. He desires to be holy. We see that in this passage of Scripture in 1 Peter. As a matter of fact, we have a purpose statement here in verse 24, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is all in accordance with, with God's rule, God's law. How do we know what's right and good? By the law of God. So we're to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. How many people have you heard say, oh, well, it doesn't matter what I do, because I'm, I'm saved, I'm not under the law anymore. 
Well, what does it mean to not be under the law anymore? Because it does seem that our generation is inclined to think that not being under the law means that the law of God actually is no longer important to me, that it doesn't serve a purpose, that things are different now, that God isn't concerned with whether I obey his law. But that's not what it means to not be under the law. The idea behind not being under the law is simply that we're no longer under the condemnation that the law would bring to us. You see, because we recognize, and God has told us, when we break God's law, then we are susceptible and we deserve an eternal hell. Because a gracious and loving God has uh, set before us a pathway which is the best for us. He says, walk ye in it. Walk in this path, this path of holiness. So to no longer be, the, no, to no longer be under the law... Uh, is a direct reference to this idea that, that in Christ I'm no longer under the condemnation, the hell-sending damnation of the law. It absolutely does not mean that it is no longer important for me to obey the law and to enter into faithful walking with God. You see, we discovered a few weeks ago, or rediscovered probably for many of us, uh, that God for some reason has attached obedience to Him with our own happiness. Does that seem like a trick to you? (laughs) God has attached our happiness and joy to our obedience to Him. Now what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel is certainly we understand this is gospel obedience, this idea that we can't obey God perfectly. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ receives our efforts at at obedience very graciously. He asks the question, what did we mean to do? But nonetheless, obedience is a premium. We're not to use this freedom in Christ to be antinomians. Our obligation to obedience to the law of God is not based on convenience, nor is it an add-on for super saints. A fervency for true biblical growth and holiness is not some sort of wet blanket over true Christian liberty. When someone is careful about the ways of God, about entering into the Word of God, are they sometimes characterized as just kind of the the party pooper, right? Oh, this guy, like he's going to read his Bible and take that seriously? Oh, okay. But you see, what we have here is this idea of Christian liberty has to do with the freedom... To obey God. That's what Christian liberty is. It's the freedom, because we've been freed in Christ, we've been redeemed, we've been purchased, uh, we've been ransomed, bought with a price, so that we are no longer attached as a slave to sin. Now we have the freedom to actually obey God. Before, before being redeemed, we didn't. Now, let's look here at this word in verse 16, living as servants of God. Living as servants of God. Servants there in your Bible is a euphemism. Now, a euphemism is a word that 
frames uh, perhaps a kindlier picture of the word that really belongs there. The word that really belongs there comes from the Greek word doulos, which means slave. It always means slave, it only means slave, and that's the word that's here. You may have a footnote, likely you do. Verse, uh, I have a footnote here, it says bond servants. That also is a euphemism. Uh, And so, again, we're looking at the word slave. I'm not one to take um, uh, undue nitpickiness with the text here, but nonetheless, I think it's important because there is a distinction between a servant and a slave. And what is that distinction? Well, it has to do with ownership. (laughs) The simple matter of ownership. You see, slaves are owned by someone else. And servants own themselves. We're slaves. We've been bought with a price. The Lord Jesus Christ owns us. And so we have a relationship of slave. Now, don't be too upset at that. Because our Master... (laughs) is the glorious king of the universe. He is the beneficent one. He is the perfect one. He is the one that loves us. He's the one that died for us. He's our redeemer. He's the one that set aside all of the majesty in heaven to come and be like a man on this earth and walk this earth and live as we live and purchase for us a sinless eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins and also lived a perfect life for us. This is the one that we're enslaved to. It's a good thing. Often today, therapeutic language involving definitions of Christianity are used. They emphasize self-care. The trials and challenges of following Christ are often placed in the terms of how one's faith will be refined or how it will work for one's good. The slave-master relationship provides the antidote for this sort of cultural marinade. While it may be abrupt, it is by far the most common metaphor used in Scripture to describe the relationship of Christ to the redeemed. John MacArthur has written an entire book entitled Slave. I would draw your attention to that. Now, why do I think this is important? Well, I think it's important because the Holy Spirit apparently thinks it's important as he drew the Apostle Peter's attention to this idea of slave. Slave is this word that's used 124 times in the Bible. Again, when we think about, I'm persuaded, the emphasis, the ultimate emphasis of this text is on suffering. When hard times come, what can servants do? Well, they own themselves. They can go home. (laughs) When hard times come, what do slaves do? They serve their master. They stay. They're there. They stay in the difficulty, in the challenge. Slaves are attached to their master. They're not going anywhere. They have nowhere else to go. You see, they're attached to the Master, and that's why I think that this is particularly important. MacArthur goes on to say the Gospel is not an invitation to become an associate of Christ. It's a mandate to become His slave. 
Further, because our evangelical culture is so man-centered, we may be inclined to view the greatest aspect of obedience to God, the spiritual growth we may enjoy through obedience. This has become another reason for obedience to seem optional. Here's the point I'm trying to make. When we think of difficulty and suffering, when we think of the disciplines that are, that are ours as we lean into obeying God, the Apostle Paul uses language of the gym. What happens at the gym? Well, hard work happens at the gym, right? But also, there's an imperceptible growth that happens at the gym, right? When you want to run faster or lift more weight, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It happens after a long period of very hard work. Sometimes we place in that same category our own discipleship. In other words, the gymnasium uh, metaphor works, but not perfectly, and here's why. Because the gospel has become, in our generation, so self-centered, we're inclined to think that the greatest aspect of our own self-discipline, entering more faithfully into the things of God, is what we gain. Right? What we gain. But if we focus on the, fa- the mere fact that we gain, then you see that we've not yet full- really entered into this concept of relationship that God has made us with for the Lord Jesus Christ. To focus on what we gain is a man-centered gospel. And it flies in the face of what the Apostle Paul, which I hope to reference in Philippians, the book of Philippians, this idea that to live is Christ, actually. To live is Christ. That doesn't mean that we lose our own individuality. It doesn't mean that we're drawn into this giant sort of nothingness where there's no distinction between individual. I'm persuaded, as are Orthodox Bible students the world over, that heaven will be a place where we know one another. Where we, where we will have beautiful distinctions, one person from another. We will be holy, and that's how we will be different. But nonetheless, we should see that the greatest aspect of this is the Lord Jesus Christ, that He has called us to Himself. The Lord Jesus says Himself in Matthew chapter 10, that the nature of the Christian life is slavery to the Lord Jesus. Now, verses 18 and 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, Peter's already put us on notice that Christ has made us exiles, right? There's something else happening here in verses 18 and 19. Peter is implying that our redemption is not a promise of a better earthly life. What? (laughs) Wait a minute. You mean that I'm going to take a difficult life that's already hard and I'm going to come to faith in Christ and then my life's not going to get easier? Seriously? You You mean my job may get harder, actually? You mean people may like me less at work and in my neighborhood? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yes. That's what Peter is implying right here in verses 18 and 19. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now there are two ideas here, two contexts, unjust masters and unjust 
government authority, how do unjust masters work? Oh, well, they just take your ideas and claim them as their own. They harbor untrue things about you. They don't pay you fairly. They're inconsiderate regarding your time and money. They do not do what they say they will do, and they do not take personal interest in you. That's just a few ideas there with unjust masters. Everybody, Anybody ever had one of those guys as a boss? Sure. But our God is purposeful in that, right? What's the source and reason for this suffering? Again, a spectrum of issues here. Because employers can be unkind and thoughtless, inconsiderate and demanding, this makes for a very challenging work environment. Secondly, regarding the government, because we do not do the things the state requires of us, they're opposed to the ways of God, and so state action is brought against us, which takes away more liberty and freedom. Obedience to God is costly. It's costly. One of the things that our virtual world has done to our thinking uh, has impacted our own understanding of warfare. This idea of virtual warfare. This idea that I can actually enter into battle and not get hurt. Well, what we've seen in our culture, in our evangelical culture over the past few years, is this idea that I can be a faithful follower of Christ and it doesn't cost me anything. Perhaps we should name that virtual Christianity. You see, because biblical Christianity is costly. It's costly. It costs the Lord Jesus Christ His life. And it costs those apostles their lives. And it costs the martyrs, obviously, their lives. But have no fear. Have no fear because we've entrusted ourselves, as verse 23 says, to Him who judges justly. John, Peter, and Paul suffered because they obeyed God against the will of government officials and were persecuted because of it. Chinese Christians, the Richard Wormbrands of this world, Soviet bloc communism, they all actively obeyed God and bore the consequences. Now he draws our attention to another situation here in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter does contrast here between suffering for doing evil and suffering because of being faithful. How do we respond when we rightly bear the consequences of our own sinful actions? When we rightly bear the consequences of our own sinful actions. We may be inclined to want to count that as persecution. It isn't. It's the consequences of our sin. How about when things are difficult because of an accident we're involved in where we were at fault? Whether it's breaking the thing in the store, ruining someone's favorite item, do we tend to shrug our responsibility and enter fully into into restoration? 
Again, there are, some di- there are several aspects and categories of difficulty in our lives. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. Peter's talking about suffering for being faithful here. Verses 21 to 25, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example, so that you can follow in His steps. The thrust here on suffering, not submission to authority. Yes, submission is a very significant aspect of this passage, but here we are looking at the end of it. Faithful submission to authority, ultimately the submission to God, will result in suffering. When John Bunyan was, when, was in the Bedford jail for preaching, he continued to preach from the jail. How long was he there, children? Do you know how long John Bunyan was in jail? Twelve years. John Bunyan was in jail for 12 years. Why did he get thrown in jail? Preaching the gospel. That's why John Bunyan was thrown in jail. When Richard Wormbrand was thrown in prison, he acknowledged the relationship he had with the guards. He said it was very simple. I preached and they beat me up. And then I went back and preached and then they beat me up and we did that over and over and over again. Our Lord was stalwart and faithful and committed no sin in His entanglements with the religious institutions of His day and the Roman government. Peter is addressing this idea here in verse 22 and 23, 24. He committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You know, there are a lot of believers that become very, very frantic with slander and gossip and so forth. It is a challenge. But I want to encourage you to take content in what the Lord Jesus knows here. That we can do the same that He did and trust ourselves to Him who judges justly. You see, the reality is is that God knows the truth. He knows the truth. And while the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't settle all of His accounts on Monday, they will all be settled. And that is an important idea that we gain here. The Lord Jesus Christ, as I said, was stalwart and faithful and committed no sin in His entanglements. He pressed on with the courage and tenacity of a moving, thoroughly efficient, powerful infantry battalion. Yes, taking chances and taking casualties, but all as a result of wise determination being assured of final victory. Victory and suffering in the battles of our lives is not vengeance. To stay in the fight is not at cross purposes with faithfulness. I draw your attention to Philippians. I'd like to ask you to turn there. Philippians chapter 1. So we have Galatians and then Ephesians and then Philippians. Philippians. 
Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21, here the Apostle Paul says this, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, he goes on to explain that in chapter 1, and I draw your attention also to his further explanation in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 7. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, But whatever whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me His own. Among the very significant issues in our day is whether the nature of our suffering is in the passive wringing of the hands over this perverse generation or stepping into the fray with urgency as our regular vocations collide with a dying world desperately in need of Christ. We have been redeemed to face head-on a perverse generation in the mundane callings of our lives. The scriptures reveal that your faithfulness in this will provide a thrilling an adventurous pathway through life filled with opportunities to see the faithfulness of God. What did Jesus do? Jesus pressed on with what we might contemporarily say in our culture, the attitude of a quiet professional. He was not drawn to the right or to the left, but set his face like flint and went forward faithfully enduring suffering and pain and difficulty, recognizing that he can delightfully submit himself to a father who judges justly every single day. Our lives are made up mostly of the mundane, of the simple, of the getting up, of the teaching the children, of the going to work, of the, of the slopping the hogs and so forth and so on. But in that context is where God has us enter into the collisions with this perverse generation in the gospel. And will we be a people who simply wring our hands, or will we enter into the phrase, suit up, as the Bible says, and go forward? Whether it be by prayer, whether it be by admonishing the government around us, whether it be by encouraging our brother and sister, whether it be by going to work even though it's raining outside. That's what God has called us to do, and we can do it joyfully and enter into that because we are redeemed people. Let us pray.